Welcome everyone to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. I am your co-host, David Pastrana. And I am your co-host, Mike Reeves. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Today, we will be talking about the role of movement analysis and posture in practice. Why don't we just get right into it? Um, give us a little bit of info as far as you know why we decided to do this topic. Uh, yeah, so I think posture is a very powerful word when you when you talk about it with people there's a lot of conceptions by 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 patients that they they think that their posture ties significantly into their pain uh, which may or may not be true Uh, but but something something that i've seen is just there's there's such variability in how the topic of posture is discussed with patients and that could be a good thing because certain you know patients may respond to one narrative around posture, and others may respond to a different narrative around posture. Uh, so, so I think it, it'll be kind of cool to, to to dive into when we might want to use certain narratives, what other narratives could be potentially detrimental, and uh, also discuss our thoughts on what the internet, what media portrays about posture, and and how how that might tie into our role as a healthcare provider, potentially changing patients' perceptions. So I think um, that's a good place to start. Throughout this whole discussion, I really want our listeners to think about not only the topics that we're discussing, but also how you would present these topics to your patients, because how we explain changing someone's movement or maybe suggesting a change in a posture, whatever it might be, can really influence um, how they perceive their pain. And you don't really want them to, to think or believe that there's something wrong with them or wrong with a particular movement or posture. It's going to be more looking about how that individual movement or posture really is changing what they experience at that moment in time. So the reason Mike and I wanted to do this topic, I've seen a lot of conflicting evidence regarding movement analysis and posture in research and how people perceive it in clinical practice. Some will say that it's not relevant at all, and then others will place all their, their emphasis and all their energy into correcting specific movements or perfecting a certain posture. So, Mike, tell me a little bit about what you look for as far as movement analysis and posture. Do you think it's important in every patient? Do you think it's important in some patients? Is it your immediate go-to? So how I look at it is going to be a little bit different depending on every patient. I think one thing to really think about is if there's a specific posture or position that seems to cause them pain. That's like our easy button as a physical therapist. It hurts when I do this. And then we figure out a way to work around that pain and make them have less pain while they're doing whatever they need to be in that position for. So I think depending on the patient, there's a lot of different ways that we can approach this. Your easy one is your desk worker. It hurts when I sit at my desk for a long period of time, or my hand goes numb when I'm in this position for a long period of time. Those are all things that that can be easily addressed. And then your your movement analysis and, and, and your posture analysis might be a lot different when you're dealing with a high-level athlete. Your posture analysis and, and, and your movement analysis changes significantly based on the patient that you're dealing with. What's your take on individuals having you know, really bad posture, but not necessarily having pain, and then some individuals maybe having moderately variable posture from what we would perceive as normal, but then those individuals having pain? Yeah, so I think something that, that we kind of touched on last episode is just load management and overall load. So all of our 
tissues in our body have have a certain threshold that they're willing to handle before they start sending some pain signals to our brain. One thing that can, that can potentially be looked at is, is this person doing something that their tissues just aren't able to handle? So that can be something that we do. Do they just actually need to get a little bit stronger and build up that load tolerance and that will take away their pain? Or is it something where we have some stiffness in these joints and there's just not enough variability in their movement available and the joints get overloaded in, in that way as, as opposed to having weakness in the muscle and that everything might be strong, there's just not enough movement variability and that ends up causing them some pain. Right. And I think kind of what you're alluding to is that there's a lot of variables involved with a pain experience. It's not necessarily a single contributor that can be isolated. You get your randomized control trial that looks maybe at dynamic knee valgus and sees, well, these people have very dramatic knee valgus, but they don't have pain. Therefore, that movement is not an absolute predictor of pain, which in essence is true. It's not an absolute predictor, but can be a risk factor. And I think at the same time, you've got to look at a multitude of variables. Yeah, could not agree more. I think, yeah, one of the big things is if you're dealing with a runner, for instance, they have a very high volume in their training. So large extra amounts of force through a joint over a long period of time. Uh, So just total volume of, of what someone is going to be expected to do might alter how I potentially treat that patient. Right. And I think one important topic is trying to quantify or or at least analyze what's normal versus abnormal movement. And I think the big thing that's been going on within our profession and within those individuals that use movement analysis within the last few decades is trying to find that perfect or that normal movement or that normal or perfect posture. And I think it really doesn't exist as far as being normal or perfect. I think any posture or movement that's repetitive and and voluminous is going to create that stress overload injury. So when we look at movement, I think it's important to look at it as a normal variance away from a neutral point. So my example would be, if you look at runners, like you were just mentioning, some are supinated, some are pronated, and there's some hypothetical neutral somewhere in between where those two movements or those two anatomical positions transition. And it's not about finding that perfect anatomical position. It's about how far that movement is away from the neutral. So the more variability away from neutral, the more extreme the movement or posture and the higher probability of creating a stress overload injury. So if you look at, let's say, a runner who's heavily supinated, they're going to be striking on that that lateral aspect of their foot repetitively. For a smaller contact area, you're going to get increased stress through that area, higher probability of generating a stress overload injury. Whereas if you had, let's say, a normal variance of supination, which again is difficult to quantify. But the point that I'm trying to make is the more extreme the movement variability or the postural variability is away from that hypothetical neutral, the higher probability that they generate a stress overload injury and the more difficult it becomes to gradually load them into a position or a a movement of, of high resiliency just because that stress overload injury becomes more probable as that contact area decreases or as that movement becomes more extreme. Mike, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, mean, I think you brought up a really good point, you know, just decreasing that contact area. And so, so, so that's where people talk about bad movements. And that's where as a profession, I feel we were probably 20 years ago or so where it's, you know, these movements cause increased force in this area and therefore they are bad. 
And I don't necessarily think that that's true, but if you are looking at helping someone move better, their most common movement should be in that hypothetically ideal situation that's going to put the least amount of strain on their body. So starting there is fine, but knowing that moving in these perfect patterns is not possible forever. Um, and I think one thing to look at and you know, with like the ACL research and, and things like that, when they look at jumping and landing form, they talk about how dynamic valgus increases the risk of, of ACL injury. But it's really just those people on the severe end of that. It's not your people that have a couple of degrees of valgus that's like that looks fairly well controlled. Um, it's it's more the people that kind of snap into that valgus and it, it just looks really bad. And the people that you don't even have to go to physical therapy school, you look at it and go, that looks not great. Um, so the, those are the people that I think we really need to worry about really fixing the movement pattern. Some of the other stuff, I think we can look at more controlling movement, more so than eliminating the little bit of abnormalities that we see. Right, right. And knee valgus is going to be a risk factor, but it's not an absolute predictor. So I think looking at a movement pattern as a risk factor rather than an absolute predictor is a good way to think about it. And it really comes back to our clinical judgment of determining how, how biomechanically plausible is it that this movement pattern is contributing to their complaint or how biomechanically probable is it that this posture is keeping someone in a painful state. So I think even if someone were to achieve a perfect posture, a perfect movement, if they were to continue to load themselves in that particular movement pattern at a high volume without a good load management program without a good gradual progression, they would probably still create a pain experience. So I think the main thing is that any repetitive static loading that's prolonged can generate or maintain someone in a painful experience. And any prolonged or repetitive cyclic loading is going to also create a stress overload without appropriate load management. Yeah. Um, so I, I think you bring up a good point. I think a, a lot of clinicians fall into that category of, of trying trying to change someone's posture because I think that's going to change their pain. And I'm not necessarily saying that's wrong. The way that I look at it is that it's really, really, really hard to change someone's posture. Increasing range of motion of a stiff spine in someone who is 70 years old is not easy and it's going to take some time and it's going to take some effort on their end. So a lot of the exercises that that we do can potentially do that. Just understand that the amount of dosing required in order to actually achieve true postural changes is pretty high. That being said, I think introducing just general movement in a pain-free way is going to be beneficial to that patient no matter what. Right. Yeah, no, I definitely liked a lot of the things that, that you touched on there. Early in my career, I really thought that, that people should try to achieve this perfect posture. And it's fairly obvious now that that's not true. And, and you touched on a second point, and that was that just pain-free movement is, is going to be the key to really getting people to feel better. So when you look back to our original discussion regarding loading, because that's really what it all comes down to with whether it's movement or posture is looking at, at the volume, the intensity of loading and the individual's resiliency to that load whether it's significant enough to create a stress overload or whether they have the resiliency to tolerate it. So going back to the idea of introducing pain-free movement, I think posture is less about being perfect or achieving 
some ideal posture. It's more about postural variability. What's important to look at is we've kind of associated certain postures as being bad, but I don't think it's that they're necessarily bad. I just think that they're the most common. We live in a world where our devices are in front of us. We work with our hands in front of us. By nature, we tend to pull ourselves into a forward head, rounded shoulders, increased thoracic kyphosis. And I think this is just the most common postural variance from that hypothetical neutral. I think adding some variability to any prolonged static loading is going to be beneficial. So for example, if I have someone who works, let's say a desk job for eight hours a day, and they really don't get up or really don't change their position, I really try to promote them to just do maybe 10 chin tucks, 10 scapular retractions every hour, every 30 minutes, just to add some variability in how they're loading. And I think this helps them get more relief by the end of the day. And I really tell them, I say, it's not about being perfect. It's more about adding variability so that you're not loading the same areas, the same structures for a prolonged period of time all day, every day. Yeah, I could not agree more. So when we look at gradual onset pain, I think it's very common to kind of chase a lot of different movement impairments and really overanalyze every little piece of movement variability that the patient has. And I think a lot of clinicians and even students become overwhelmed just because I know some of us look at a lot of different variables when doing our evaluation, and it's really easy to get lost with all the different movement variabilities that we encounter. So Mike, the question I have for you is with gradual onset pain, how often do you go the route of looking for or chasing movement dysfunction? And how often do you look at program design, volume, intensity, their periodization, when really trying to figure out what's the contributor or the main driver behind the patient experience? I think that for all of my patients, I'm going to look at both at some point. I think that during your history, you can probably have that point you in one direction as to what you think the primary driver for that person might be. But I think to hang your hat on just one of those things, I think you'll you'll probably end up missing a good portion of what your rehab might be able to do for this person. So your load management, all that stuff, that that just comes down to a lot of education. I think emphasizing that rest is important. Do nothing tomorrow. Maybe take a day off, relax. And then we switch gears to looking at a lot of movement analysis, right? And so all of your movement testing, screening, FMS, SFMA, little individual tests, lateral step-down tests, just watching them squat. All of these things are, are, are potential easy things to look at early on. And it just kind of helps point you in the right direction to, is there something that's significantly off here that logically makes sense for why this person could be having this pain? If they, if they do a movement and it reproduces their pain, can we then change their pain by changing that movement? Right. That's, that's another one of those easy buttons for us as physical therapists. Right. So, Mike, a question that I have for you that I think a lot of our listeners would also be interested in, just because I've seen a lot of debate regarding this particular topic, and I know you deal with, with higher level athletes relatively frequently. So let's say you have a patient who only has pain during their particular sport or deep into their run. Let's say it's a very volume-based type of pain presentation where really you, you can't provoke their symptoms too much in the clinic with some of your functional testing. 
how do you decide when a movement, quote unquote, dysfunction is significant and when it's just a part of their normal movement variability and we really shouldn't go chasing it in a sense? Just because I know a lot of clinicians have a lot of information regarding all the different movement dysfunctions and movement variabilities. And sometimes it can become overwhelming to really try to chase all these little dysfunctions and variabilities that we encounter at each joint. And sometimes we almost get lost chasing them. So how do you decide when when something's worth addressing and when something is worth accepting as a part of normal movement? Yeah, um, I think it's worth addressing when someone gets pain further into their run. Um, I think number one for that person is probably going to be load management, right? Okay, why don't we add more rest days between runs, maybe decrease your distance a little bit in, in the short term. But that's just, you know, that's, they, don't, they don't necessarily need me for that. That's just kind of me, me telling them, okay, here's how we can help manage the load. It's good education, but they don't need to come back week after week after week. So, so then I think it's important to look at addressable factors. Do we have significant weakness anywhere that needs to be addressed? Do we have, do we have something along the lines of, you know, you talk about a, a runner getting pain deep in, into their run. Can I put them on a treadmill, do a little bit of analysis and potentially pick out some of those biomechanical faults that aren't necessarily bad, but do put a little bit of extra stress through muscles, joints, whatever, that put them at a, at a little bit risk of flaring up and causing pain potentially two miles sooner than they would if we were able to address that. Simple things like changing their cadence, potentially changing their their posture a little bit with their with their running, giving them some some quick little cues to work on, getting off the ground a little bit quicker, um, staying a little bit high through their hips. All all those little cues can decrease the amount of strain that their body needs to go that their body goes through during their runs um, and might might be able to buy them a little bit of extra time. So that that that's where I would start for someone who in 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 that kind of position specifically kind of, kind of that that runner gets gets pain later on in their run. Right. Um, and and managing that there, there's a lot of little things that go into that. How often do you allow them to run? What type of strengthening stuff do you work into their program? How do you change the volume of their running? Are they training for a race at that time? A lot of things come into that, but that, that's probably where I would start. Right. And you mentioned load management. I think that's going to be the obvious one is, is are, they, are they overdosing themselves on activity without appropriately periodizing their, their training? So I think looking at how extreme the movement variability is from that hypothetical neutral and seeing how biomechanically plausible it actually is in regards to what the patient's complaining of. So, for example, if you have a runner and they've got significant crossover while they're running, the chance of them developing a lateral hip compressive syndrome or greater trochanteric pain syndrome, gluteal tendinopathy, trochanteric bursitis, whatever you want to label it, probability of them developing that lateral hip compressive syndrome is going to increase with how extreme that crossover pattern is while they're running. So I think part of that comes back to our clinical decision making is, is how extreme is the variability and how biomechanically plausible is it that it's contributing to what they're experiencing. And then again, going back to we were, what we were saying about static load variability with posture, I think you can even have cyclic load variability. So when I would treat my runners, basically what I would tell them is there's no perfect way to run as far as endurance. I mean, there are certain ways to sprint for performance and 
And that's a whole different discussion. But when it comes to injury prevention and you're trying to not overload a specific tissue, you want to look at cyclic load variability. So if you have a runner who runs very upright, they've got more of that quad dominant pattern and they're three or four miles in, coaching them to add maybe seven to 10 degree forward trunk lean to get more glute dominant pattern. I know I've seen with a lot of uh, Achilles tendonitis, tendinopathies, they tend to be more upright runners and then getting some contributions from the glutes with a forward trunk lean. It's going to help offload uh, the muscular demand at the ankle a little bit. So I think when deciding when to address movement dysfunction, you really have to look at how extreme is the movement from that hypothetical neutral, not that you should try to get them to that neutral or normal. It's just a reference point to see how extreme the movement is and really looking at if it's biomechanically plausible that the movement that you're looking at is contributing to what they're experiencing. So I think distinguishing between very obvious and plausible biomechanical contributors and very far-fetched minuscule movement dysfunction, I think is a very important thing to distinguish when, when we're discussing this topic. Any thoughts on that, Mike? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think people that spend a lot of time looking at, like you said, kind of those, those far-fetched things, you know, your L3 isn't properly extending as you're going into your squat, like little things along those lines. It's just so hard to pick that stuff out. Right. Right. And that's kind of why I brought up that point is I really wanted to uh, look deeper into how challenging it is to, to make that decision of either chasing a movement dysfunction or, or attributing something to movement and then going on the other end and saying, well, that movement's okay. Let's, let's focus more on load tolerance. And it's really a decision-making process that, that we need to go through and use our clinical judgment. Maybe we'll utilize a little bit of both, but I think that really is the challenge right now is trying to figure out is every little movement variability or dysfunction worth chasing or do we really need to focus on on load management? And I think it can be a little bit of both. I think educating on load variability, on periodization, active rest days like you alluded to, and then kind of realizing that certain higher level movements are going to be very difficult to change and that we're better off going ahead and, and addressing load management and, and really trying to build tolerance to activity. So one final thing that I wanted to look at before we discuss some of the movement variabilities that we look at and, and how it influences our practice is I wanted to talk about movement strategies, but more in those sedentary adults that come to us for, for general orthopedic complaints. Do you address movement dysfunction with, with this patient population, or do you feel like it's more of a, a gradual loading load management strategy? Yeah, so one thing that comes to mind is your kind of chronic low back pain patient. A lot of times I would see hyperlordosis type of thing and say it hurts when I stand for a long period of time. Um, so that, that postural analysis kind of ties into my decision making for them because I just want to, I, I want them to be able to introduce a little bit of variability into their standing static posture. Um, so I'll work on pelvic tilts, potentially um, some sort of lumbar flexion exercises, knees to chest, anything along those lines that increases some some variability into their posture and then teach them how to vary it in standing. So can you just lean forward a little bit? Can you go into a little bit of a posterior pelvic tilt as you're standing and having a conversation with someone? Can you put one leg in front of the other? Just anything to kind of change up that low back position to make them a little bit more comfortable in that position for a little bit longer. That's normally how I'd tie it into kind of that older population. It hurts when I do this for a while. Okay, why, why don't we just introduce in a few ways that you can 
discreetly kind of vary, vary that posture while you're in that position. So that way you don't have to lay down on the floor and do three PT exercises. Right. Uh, maybe do those at home. Yeah. I like, I like that point that you touched on. And I think it kind of circles back to some points we were making at the beginning. Essentially what you're doing is just prolonged static posterior facet loading, and that's going to generate a stress overload after a period of time. And I think patients probably have had this posture for a while. And eventually as they have those repetitive static stress overload injuries, you get those, those pain neuroscience changes central sensitization. And I think over time, it makes their body and their low back more sensitive to that static overload. So it starts to become more prevalent, more frequent until they go out and seek care. And I think what's also interesting about this is when you look at imaging, they go to the physician and the physician tells them, well, you've got some really bad arthritis back there, whatever it might be, increased bony growth. And I think it's really important to discuss with patients how loading can influence their imaging in regards to saying, hey, it's not that you have arthritis back there. That's not the cause of your pain. That is more of a footprint or a representation of, of how you've been loading over time. And I think that static stress overload causes bony growth. I think when we apply stress or forces to the bone, it's just going to grow where those forces are being applied. So I think that's an important conversation to have. And then I think looking at certain daily movement patterns like a squat to bend down and pick up a laundry basket. I think especially when it comes to the low back, we typically think we need to lift with our back perfectly straight, bend from the knees, and our patients really end up developing inherently just from the information that they've been given a knee dominant strategy. So one thing I really try to coach individuals through is optimizing their movement pattern for a certain task without trying to necessarily create fear regarding certain movements. So if they're picking up a pen from the ground, like go ahead and bend from your low back, lumbar flexion's fine. Like that's not enough of a overload to create stress overload injury. But if you're picking up heavy boxes in your garage, really trying to teach that hip dominant strategy by creating a hip hinge while engaging the abdominals to create a little bit of spinal stability when doing some heavy lifting. I think that's going to help each of the joints in the lower extremity share some of that load rather than necessarily doing a purely knee dominant or a purely a lumbar dominant strategy. Any thoughts on that, Mike? Uh, I thought you hit it on the head with that one. Cool. We're going to kind of finish off here by looking at gait, running, and jumping. Certain things that, that Mike and I look for. Mike, You'll probably have a little bit more insight into into some of these. I really do uh, value gait analysis. I feel like it gives me information in regards to what the, the patient's experiencing. I may not try to necessarily make them walk perfectly, but I think when someone's in acute pain, inherently their movement changes because of the pain process and because of any surrounding arthrogenic inhibition that's going to be inhibition of surrounding musculature of the painful joint, kind of like you would have that the quad inhibition after an ACL surgery. So I, I do look at it because it gives me information in regards to what the patient's currently experiencing. So what are some things that, that you look for in gait or what are some things that you really value that you feel are relevant and aren't necessarily you know, chasing those, those random movement dysfunctions. Yeah. So as far as purely gait goes, at least in like the younger athletic population that I work with, don't address it very much unless they're coming off that kind of acute stage where you can clearly see some sort of limp persisting with kind of your, your older adult population. Same thing. I don't necessarily look at it all that much unless there's something like glaring right um, and so we, we kind of talked about that earlier there's a wide range around normal 
And really what you're looking for are those, are those outliers where something could potentially be coming into play. That That's kind of what I look at. And you don't need to be an expert at gait analysis to pick out the the severe abnormalities. That's that's how I, how I look at specifically gait. I don't hang too much. I don't put too much stock in it. Right. So I would agree with that. I don't have too many things written down here. I think the things that that we do see are fairly obvious and at times fairly common. So it makes me question their relevance. So these are things that they're so common in everyone. Are are they actually relevant? The the main things that I wrote down here that I really wanted to look at, and I think this is more relevant to my Medicare population with balance and, and gait dysfunction. I see a lot of individuals who come in for balance training. And immediately when we think of balance, it takes us to vestibular and proprioception. We think, okay, we've got to do some standing on foam to improve their balance, or we've got to do some walking with head turns kind of go immediately into our, our balance activity when we get in that balance eval. And I would say fairly often, I'm getting a lot of balance patients that are actually weakness. And what I see is when you get those individuals that have increased lateral trunk lean, when they walk from side to side, what's actually happening is they're getting a large excursion of their center of, of mass that moves them past their base of support. So when you get that huge sway in their center of mass, they almost feel off balance. And these are going to be your patients who tell you, I feel off balance, but I've never actually fallen. And it's more just because they're getting that increased postural sway from that lateral trunk lean. And I think the same is going to apply for those with with decreased stance time. I think innately our body finds ways to get movements done using whatever it has to work with. So I think the decreased stance time and lateral trunk lean are kind of coming from the same weakness or the same impairment, but just demonstrate differently in different individuals. So what I see a lot is individuals with decreased stance time are going to really feel like they're going to fall just because they don't feel comfortable standing on one leg. And when you look at walking, it's just repetitive standing on one leg. So these are the individuals that when you get them in front of a, a staircase or a step, and you don't allow them any upper extremity support, they're either unable or really hesitate, hesitant to do a toe tap and just to tap the step. So I've seen a lot of individuals go do toe taps and they they hold on to a railing or whatever it might be to be safe. But really, we, we should be guarding these patients and forcing them or really trying to encourage them to try to tap their, their foot onto the step without that support to really facilitate increased stance time and increased uh, comfortability when it comes to standing on one leg. And it's really just half a second between lifting your foot and clearing the step, but you'd be surprised how many patients are actually fearful and unable to do it. And I think when you're looking at balance, you really can't forget about strength and particularly that, that glute med strength for single leg stability. Mike, have you seen this fairly often? I know you don't really deal with, with older population too much, but what are your, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. So I saw that a lot where, where at a lot of the previous clinics that I had been at and what I started doing was I started introducing um, a wide base single leg leg press pyramid into almost every single one of my falls and balance patients. Okay. Um, and so start wherever they want. I mean, if it was one plate type of thing, um, do it. Um, and, and that's how we would, we would end pretty much every single session with kind of this, this pyramid, obviously making sure that we don't tire them out too much. So, so they end up falling, walking out the door type of thing. But, but, work on an actual strengthening program for these patients as they're as they're coming for therapy strictly for that reason to increase that that lower extremity strength 
so many things that just being a little bit stronger can can help you with. Um, and so that that's something for me personally, if it was one day a week that we get this true, like a true strengthening exercise in, you know, sit the stands are amazing. And every single one of my patients would do those. Some steps were amazing. Every single one of my patients would, would do those. Um, but getting in that significant strengthening input that they haven't had in probably 20 years, I think is, I think was something that, you know, I, I got looked at like I had six heads when I, when I added it in. Uh, but I think my patients really enjoyed it. And then one other thing that I wanted to talk about just with Gate here, I think we touched on it just a smidge last or last episode when we were discussing some of the pain science education information. I think looking at knee flexion during loading phase. So what you really need is good quad control to eccentrically control knee flexion during loading phase. And this is to help create shock absorption, absorb some of the, the ground reaction forces during gait. And you also need it during jumping, that knee flexion, that eccentric knee flexion is going to help absorb uh, some of those ground reaction forces to create shock absorption. So I think these are really relevant in post-op patients, especially total knees, even ACL, if they, if they try to progress themselves too early. I think looking at their eccentric knee control during loading will give you a lot of information regarding their uh, quad strength and quad activation. Another population I really see this in is your, your knee, your knee OA. And typically what I see is the pain process creates quad inhibition. Quad inhibition creates innate adapted gait patterns that the patient doesn't really choose. It just kind of happens so that they can continue to walk. And they end up walking on a stiff knee, which decreases the shock absorption properties of, of the knee joint and ends up increasing those tibiofemoral joint forces, which can kind of feed back into their, their pain experience and create more quad inhibition and kind of keep, keep people in this pain loop. So I think it's one of those patient populations where you can strengthen all you want, but if you're not really doing the gait re-education and, and trying to prevent those tibiofemoral joint forces from exacerbating or creating uh, or maintaining the patient in their, in their painful state, you're going to kind of be stuck in this loop. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. Um, I guess my, my question for you is, what are ways that you have found work pretty well in those patients, specifically those kind of older post-op total knees right. that kind of them introduce a little bit of a, a gait with a little bit of a, of a less stiff knee? Right. So with the total knees, one thing that I've seen is swelling is a huge component. If their knees stay swollen, their quad activation is going to lag behind, their range of motion is going to lag behind. So I think it's really important to address it in that population and especially coaching on, on load management as far as getting their swelling down. You can usually tell if, if someone is trying to do too much too fast too early or isn't really adhering to, to the activity progression that, that we've laid out just because that, that knee will come up or come back re really swollen. And that's something that I measure every visit is joint line 10 centimeters above, 10 centimeters below, really tracking the swelling early on. So I try to create a progression that's very similar to any real knee post-op. I'm doing quad sets short arc quads with the half foam, trying to get that terminal knee extension, but really emphasizing the eccentric knee control on the way down, and then trying to adapt that to close chain as quickly as I can. So once they have decent quad activation, quad control, and those open chain exercises, I will get them into standing and do uh, TKEs to focus on that terminal knee extension and standing. And then I'll really emphasize trying to eccentrically control the return. To the starting position of the exercise. And what I really like about it is when you have a resistance band, resistance bands are really great for eccentric control. 
that elastic band stores elastic potential energy. So trying to control that band that has those elastic properties that's creating a recoil in the opposite direction is going to really, really make a patient have to work harder during that eccentric phase. So using elastic bands for TKEs and not only focusing on the terminal knee extension with quad activation, but the or eccentric control of the knee flexion as they return is a go-to for me. And then eventually I will go into some gait re-education. I'll kind of get them either like a, a large stick or a cane, whatever it might be, and do almost like a slowed, exaggerated walking where they're heel striking, accepting their weight through knee flexion, and, and then continuing that pattern, kind of like we, we used to do with the ACLs uh, over at sports. Yep. Cool. All right. So, Mike, I'll let you start off with, with running, just because I know you did a lot of running analysis, and, and I dabbled in it, but I think you were probably the more experienced one when it comes to running analysis. So why don't you start us off for some things that, that you look for? Yeah. Um, so I think the big thing with, with the running analysis is I'm not going to do a running analysis with anyone unless they're a runner. You're, you're not going to do, you know, someone whose sport involves a lot of twisting, turning, sprinting, stopping, cutting, planting. That That's not what a running gait analysis is for. It's for your runner, someone who's going to, or, or your triathlete, someone who is going to be doing long distance running as their sport. And so some of the, the, the big things that you look at, your big biomechanical flaws, you, you touched on, you touched on crossover earlier. Um, that, that's, that's one to look at. Another thing you want to look for is um, trunk position. You look at hip drop, you look at tibial inclination angle, um, and you look at kind of like thoracic rotation as they run. The, the, those are kind of the, the, the big ones that, that are kind of coming to mind right now. Talk to us about tibial inclination angle in regards to stride length and cadence, just in case any of our listeners aren't too familiar with, with that component. And that's something that you really need some gait analysis software to, to really look at. It's not something that you can necessarily see with, with the naked eye and, and measure precisely. So talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so tibial in- in- inclination angle is just going to be the angle from vertical that your, uh, that your tibia is at at heel strike. So if you're striking very far out in front of you, you're going to have a higher tibial inclination angle. So higher um, stride length, higher tibial inclination angle. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Generally speaking. And, and it normally is going to come with that kind of, you, you'll hear the word overstriding. So someone's really kind of reaching out, trying to get that extra distance per stride. Um, and what that does is it just creates a large axial joint compression force. Is this going to be your shin splint population? Yeah, shin splints, potentially some knee issues, things along those lines. Okay. Um, and then as far as some things that I look at with running, uh, the main ones that are the most evidence-based are going to be your, your cadence. So increasing your cadence is, is going to help decrease some of those, those joint reaction forces and really help dissipate some of that load. And one thing that I mainly look at is trunk lean. I feel like a lot of runners are very upright, and this increases the demand on the ankle and the knee joint. And just adding a little bit of trunk lean is going to help distribute some of the muscular demand, some of the load demand, get the glutes more involved. I think your crossover is probably the most obvious gait pattern or, or running pattern that anyone can really analyze just because it's kind of obvious that that increased compression is going to create some lateral hip pain. And when I coach for running, I really just talk about load variability. I don't think there's anything wrong with running upright or running very forward. I think any prolonged movement pattern or or selected running pattern is going to create a cyclic stress overload when 
when not appropriately dosed or appropriately progressed. So I think just educating your patient and knowing how to alter their running pattern and how to alter in a way that changes the demands on their joints and their muscles is it's going to be beneficial. Mike, you want to jump in here? Um, Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is focusing on things that can realistically be changed. Right. And then, so if it can be changed, how do we change it? Right. So just understanding proper cueing and things like that and, and, and things that if you can address a couple of things, will have everything else kind of fall into place. And for running, that seems to be, like you said, getting them into a little bit of a forward trunkling, increasing that cadence just a little bit, and little cues just like running running high through your hips and kiss the ground and, and, and get off it versus pounding the ground. Just a few little cues like that kind of help kind of push everything in the right direction. And a lot of the other stuff kind of tends to, tends to normalize. All right, and let's get into jumping. We'll, we'll kind of finish off with jumping and then recap our final thoughts here. What are some things that you look for in jumping? If I'm going to do any sort of assessment, it's normally going to be the landing air scoring system um, or less. Um, and it just looks at a bunch of different things, hip angle, knee angle, ankle position, all that things as you go throughout your landing. And it's just an easy checkbox that, that you can score. Um, that's easy to track over time. Normally what I'll do is I'll just have patients take out their phones and we'll just record it right on their phone. Um, and then I'll quickly score as they're doing one or two other exercises or, or whatever. And then we'll kind of take back and then, we'll, and then we'll, we'll go over it together. Um, and I'll say, save that on your phone. We'll look at it maybe at some point in the future here in the next, you know, next few weeks, maybe a few weeks down the road and then we'll reassess and see how things are looking. Um, so th- that's just like probably that's what I tend to use um, for that. And then if you want to kind of break it down into a little bit, make it a little bit harder and a little bit higher demand, just have them do it single leg. And then you can tease out some side to side differences, um, especially with that higher demand of jumping on the one foot versus two. Right. Right. And I would say I look at some similar things. I, I really try to look at the, landing and the absorption properties at all the different joints as far as getting dorsiflexion, knee flexion, hip flexion to create good shock absorption, decreased stiffness. I know there was a study in JSBT that looked at, I think it was abdominal bracing or abdominal activation during a drop landing task. And that bracing actually increased uh, joint forces throughout the lower extremity, creating that stiffness. So I think the most important part for me when I look at jumping is looking at those different joints and making sure that they are getting that dorsiflexion, knee flexion, hip flexion throughout, and that it's smooth and actually absorbing those ground reaction forces. Sometimes when I'm coaching individuals on on drop landing or jumping, what you'll get is you'll tell them, hey, you need more dorsiflexion, more knee flexion, more hip flexion, stop landing so upright, so stiff. They'll actually just land from the jump and then fall into the squat afterward um, rather than synchronizing it and landing into the squat. So I think that's something to look out for. Are they landing into the, the soft position, that squat position, or are they landing and then squatting to create the illusion? Any thoughts on that, Mike? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's something that I think every therapist has seen at some point, that person that, you know, you tell them how you want them to do it. They're like, oh yeah, I get it. And then they kind of do exactly what you said. They land like a rock and then slowly ease down into that squat. And I'm, I'm just, I'm curious to pick your brain on um, how you tend to bridge that gap. Someone where you got to the point where their, their squat form looks good, um, but then you get them jumping and it just looks like an absolute train wreck. How, how do you kind of bridge that gap? 
for me using different feedback strategies as far as when I'm coaching someone. I try not to overwhelm my patients with too much feedback, even though I feel like I'm really guilty of of doing that. I think every time, every rep that that they do, I'm always watching and it's it's hard for me to hold back that feedback. So I try to assess how much my patient actually understands what it is that I'm instructing. If I feel like they just conceptually don't understand, I might give them a little bit more verbal feedback, do a few visual demonstrations, making sure they actually understand. And then once I can see that they understand and it's just error and actual performance, I really try to back off and say, hey, I'm going to go do something in the other gym. I'll be back in a few minutes. I want you to work on that and, and see if you can improve. And and usually walking away and giving them time to just kind of focus on on the movement, focus on their body and and not overwhelming them with so much feedback is is my strategy. I think sometimes we want our patients to do everything so perfect that we we get in the way. So I really try to switch from constant feedback to more of delayed feedback as soon as I can. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that's pretty much exactly what I tend to do. Give them a, a little bit of feedback or only have them do one or two that look good enough and say, all right, play around with that for a little bit. We'll do, you know, three sets of 10 or, or whatever the heck you, you want your dosing to be. Um, and I'll come back and then we'll kind of look at it again. Yeah, I think that's a an, another topic you actually just triggered when when you made that last statement is also thinking about your patient's load tolerance when you're transitioning into jumping from just strengthening or whatever it might be when you're getting to that final phase of of movement reeducation is thinking about their load tolerance. So something that I think is important is getting in those repetitions to promote that movement pattern that we're trying to to acquire or that our patient's trying to acquire, but really knowing when to pull the plug during a visit to prevent symptom exacerbation or stress overload. So even once you get into movement re-education and the patient's pain-free, you know, at rest or even with with their strengthening, you still want to have low tolerance in mind and make sure that you're not overdosing them during those first few visits by really trying to use a large volume of activity to to perfect a movement on day one. Yeah. I could not agree more. And then we'll kind of recap here, Mike, final thoughts. As far as the main thing that that I thought was important from this particular episode is realizing that movement and posture is a normal variance from some hypothetical neutral and that it's not about being perfect or getting to that neutral or normal, but it's kind of realizing that that movement in one direction or the other away from that neutral is acceptable and realizing that there are load management components, there are intrinsic factors such as inflammatory reactivity, how reactive someone's immune system is to to stress overload, and really trying to use our clinical decision-making to decide, is this movement or posture actually relevant? Is it just a variance of, of normal? Should we focus on load management? Or is this movement or posture so extreme? Or are they using this movement strategy or, or static loading posture for a prolonged t- period of time where they just need variability in in how they're statically or cyclically loading. So I really wanted to emphasize that when we tend to look at things in in research or even in practice, we tend to think of absolutes, either movement's relevant or it's not, or either posture's relevant or it's not. And this is probably one of the least satisfying answers, but it really is a, it depends. I think it's a risk factor. I think it's important. I don't think it's an absolute predictor, but I think neglecting posture and movement analysis is a huge disservice to the level of education and body of knowledge that we have as physical therapists. 
And even going back to what Mike was mentioning with the symptom modification procedure, when you've got those low to moderate irritability patients where you've seen something and how they move that can increase the the stress through a joint, changing how they move and and allowing them to move pain-free within session to get that buy-in is is huge. And I think it really elevates how people perceive us in the context of, of being able to address their complaint. Any final thoughts, Mike? Everything that you said there at the end was perfect. I think taking all of the knowledge that we have and applying it to each individual patient in the best way that we think we can, I think is really important. Understanding that just because a research article says that a posture doesn't cause pain, then that doesn't necessarily mean that, that it can't be a piece of the puzzle. Um, and I think kind of taking all of the knowledge that we know about everything and putting together the the puzzle that is the patient in front of us and giving them all sorts of the little things that can kind of point them in, in the right direction, um, I think is really important. And then choosing what's going to be most important for that patient is, is kind of where the art form comes in. 100% agree. And our next episode is going to be a, a stage-based approach to treatment. And what I really wanted to get from this episode is to combine some of the topics from the first two, really combining pain science, combining uh, movement analysis and exercise prescription, and really creating or, or thinking about it in a very cohesive manner when looking at how we progress rehab, when we transition between different stages of rehab, when each of those individual topics really come into play in, into our decision-making to create a very cohesive and forward-looking plan of care, not really getting stuck in a very linear strengthening progression where you're just increasing resistance and and volume, but really transitioning your patients through different stages, making the the therapy program change as their presentation changes. And I think that's going to be a very, very interesting topic. Yep. I think it'll be good. Thank you everyone for joining us for, so as we were saying, a physical therapy podcast. Really appreciate you guys listening in. We hope you have a great day and that you'll join us for the next week's episode.